Hello, ghosts and ghouls, and welcome back to They Slayed Another One, where each week we dig the skeletons out of the closets of franchise cinema and see what they have to offer us. I am one of your ghosts, Corey. And I'm your other ghost, Liam. And this week, we are digging back into the past to resurrect an episode long since forgotten. In honor of the spooky month of Spooktober and Halloween festivities all across the land, we will be discussing Texas Chainsaw 3D, which, as you may or may not know, is the first film we ever discussed on They Made Another One. It's an episode that has been sitting in the crypt below the mansion where we record this fine program, and we figured, you know, it's Spooktober! Liam, what have you been doing to ring in the festivities? I've, um, do I have to talk in that voice too, do you think? Or no! would that be too much? <laughs> what about, what horror movies have I watched? I've been kind of behind the ball. I watched Freddy vs. Jason, which is, um, would be a potential for this podcast if it weren't, like, awesome and people didn't talk about it all the time. So that was awesome. We don't um, watch I, good movies here. We don't watch good movies. <laughs> uh, I've been watching some Tales from the Crypt, which I have on DVD. Cool. And, uh, you know, I'm a working man, Corey. So my horror movie time is mostly delegated to the weekends because I am not as uh, impassioned as I once was, perhaps. I'm not as reckless as I once was. I have a bedtime now. But uh, fortunately, it's a job. The scariest thing of all is being crushed by the man. <laughs> but fortunately, I actually have a job where I can watch movies, and we're getting uh, movies in that are October themed. And there was also a bowl of Halloween candy at my office today, so I took home some Halloween candy. It's in my jacket pockets right now. And so while we listen to this episode with the audience, I'm going to be snacking away on fun-sized Mars bars and uh how do you feel about Halloween candy what are you into and what are you not into I'm a big fan of Twix <laughs> do I stop with the voice okay sorry everybody I'm stopping with the voice now I am actually a pretty big fan of Twix that wasn't a goof but um I'm more of like I'd rather get chocolate than anything yes like, I'm that way too I'm like sour patch kids or like those Swedish berries I don't want those there was somebody on my old block who used to give out tiny containers of play-doh like not to eat but like just as like a toy for the kids and it's like fucker i don't want that <laughs> like what are you talking about yeah that's whack how did you feel about cans of soda um it was never brand name soda so i was never into it really mm. do you get trick-or-treaters at your place yeah there's there's a pretty good amount but we're not always like some years were more festive than others so like the amount of effort we put into like satiating the trick-or-treaters varies year over year usually Do you yeah get... for me it's for me it's sort of the opposite man like i'm so eager to uh satiate people so i i decorate my yard with um what few halloween decorations i can afford and i turn on the porch lights and i have a big bowl of candy and I'm so excited when kids come to the door, but every year I normally only get like one or two kids because I guess 
this neighborhood is uh, not really popping and they decide it'll be better if their parents drive them elsewhere because there are kids in this neighborhood for sure. But so kids come to the door and we only get one or two. So each one gets like half a bowl of candy because I just give it all to them. Um, and so that always feels good, but I don't get to see that many costumes. But it gives me a lot of time to watch movies Halloween night because I normally leave the living room to go to the door and I'm watching, you know, Halloween 5 or whatever it is. I love October. I love the holidays. October to December is like my favorite uh, time of year. So I'm super excited to spread that over into the podcast, much like we are doing today. Indeed we are. There you go. And here I am once again, the spooky version of Corey, here to remind our listeners that this is a ghostly relic of the podcast past. In celebration of our 10th episode, we are doing a clip show extravaganza, and the one clip is the first episode of the show that we've recorded. We'll be back at the end of the episode to discuss our spooks and scares, but until then, strap in for a bumpy ride! Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of They Made Another One, where we will be looking at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise with the 2013 Texas Chainsaw 3D. I am one of your hosts, Corey. And I'm your other host, Liam. And we are going to pick apart what is ultimately kind of a weird entry in a franchise that already kind of got dragged kicking and screaming down to where it actually ended up with like seven sequels and this whole cavalcade of weird. So I guess to start, I'll just ask Liam sort of what your initial thoughts were. Um, well, this was actually uh, my second time watching this movie. You mentioned that I was familiar with the franchise, and I certainly am. I've seen the original film, which um, is apparently important for seeing this one. We'll get to it. But um, I've seen the first film. I've seen the sequel to that first film. I've seen the remake. I've seen another one of the deeper sequels, and I've seen the sequel prequel to the remake. So I'm pretty familiar <laughs> with the lore, and um, and so I had seen this this movie prior um, to this watch we did for the episode here, and um, I gotta say I liked it far more the second time around, which is strange because I was supposedly you know approaching it from a from a more critical perspective i was i was taking notes for the first time and i was thinking about what i was seeing but in doing so i guess i i proved myself to be a more optimistic and less cynical person than i thought i was because i i enjoyed it um very much i was able to separate myself uh, from from the other sequels and and what this might mean and and just approach it as as a singular movie even separate from the first movie which you really need to do because this is this is explicitly a sequel to the first movie I don't think it's a sequel that the filmmakers of that original film would certainly uh, condone so so when I just decided to look at it as as a modern day slasher movie which is which is really what it is I had a lot of fun with it and and I learned that my biggest problems with it only come when I start to compare it to that first movie and it's interesting that the original film looms like so large over it but it works so much better when you treat it on its own because the opening credits 
is super eager to remind you that the original movie exists and it is good. Um, I say it is mm-hmm. good based on other people's things because I have not seen it. But 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 you've seen it after seeing the first yeah, like, 30 seconds of this film. It's a greatest hits reel. Yeah, like <laughs> I wrote down where to include everything you're going to send up to in your opening credits. Because once you go through the rest of the movie, the bits that they're showing you are the stuff that they then do later worse. Um, but <laughs> like we can get to that. It's interesting that it does. You could divorce this from everything and it still just kind of works as a movie. And yet the movie wants you to remember that it's a weird, like, Frankensteined in sequel to that, and I don't know if that really does it any favors, but I guess that being said, we can start where the movie starts, which is mm-hmm. directly where the original movie ends, and we have a standoff between the Newt Texas sheriff and the Sawyer family as they're defending Leatherface, aka Jedediah Sawyer, from, like, this raving band of townspeople who come in and despite the sheriff's wishes just kind of like blow the place to shit and burn it down and kill everybody (laughs) like and the cop does nothing to stop them he's like hey i'd rather you didn't and then they do and he's like i'm gonna uh," he he like finger wags him and that's it he gives him he gives him a stiff shove is what he does he but he's doesn't reprimand him for for throwing a Molotov cocktail and taking justice into his own hands. And we learn later on, of course, that that none of these people are reprimanded at all for what they've done. And in fact, the newspaper has has dubbed them local heroes. The town is like really... The town is horny for murder, is what the town is. They're totally excited about this. And it's a hell of a place to start because it just... It doesn't like track almost. It's like you'd. Th- it's weird to set up that you want to give Leatherface a redemption arc because you've given like identifiable bad guys that are not the masked chainsaw murderer with seven other movies. Right, and and we're gonna come back to this, I'm sure. But that's my that's I think my biggest problem with just this movie um, as itself. If if I'm gonna separate it from the first film, my biggest problem with this movie is that. It is a redemption story for Leatherface and his family. And it that it's a redemption story for Leatherface. For someone named Leatherface, yeah. <laughs> for yeah. Someone and who chose the name Leatherface. And which is <laughs> which is interesting because um it's it wants us to remember the first movie, so we know all the awful things that have happened they there. They show him impale a man in a wheelchair with a chainsaw. In the first, yes. like, two minutes. Yeah, and then we're again reminded of that with a news headline that says, Man killed my paraplegic brother. <laughs> yeah, that's, I like think the, that's what it was. That's a poll quote on, like, the photo of the only surviving victim from the first movie. Yeah, that's the title of her future autobiography. Yeah, and it, so, anyway. Yeah, so it's, it's just so strange that this movie, um, it, it gives it a reason to exist because it's not just more of the same, right? It's a... Uh, it's it's a story that's written for a purpose, and um, it's trying to deepen the lore of this Leatherface character. It's just but, that but, we don't need deeper Leatherface lore. In the beginning, we see after they sort of sort of like the cop stuff and all that, and like the killing of a whole family. Um, we're in a grocery store, and there's a woman who's like butchering some meat, which is you know as on the nose as you can really get. And she is our main character, Heather Miller, played by Alexandra Daddario. 
and she is called out by her friend Nikki, and they are planning this like road trip with their boyfriends, and it's Halloween, and they're gonna go on this big like New Orleans trip, and they're all very excited. The movie starts at like a breakneck pace. It's only ninety-one minutes, and mm-hmm. it's worth noting that like the first twenty-five minutes or so are expressly constructed to not waste your time. Like we go from they're planning a trip. Here's the boyfriends. Heather is adopted and mad about it. She gets an inheritance from a dead Sawyer grandmother. They are now going to Texas to get the mansion. And that's just all like boom, 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 boom here. Here's everything you need to know. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of appreciated that, honestly. I um, Whereas the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre jumps to the kids in the car pretty quickly, and then, and then you have to catch up on why they're there afterwards. This one, it does set itself up very quickly, but we understand exactly what their objective is here. We understand their relationships to one another, that they're, that they're two couples. And um, so I, I really appreciated the setup and how quickly we got to the car because I knew exactly where we were going yeah it's a little bit it, it, it falls into a trap of like you just start getting like robotic exposition i don't want to say that's the movie's fault because i can't think of a way to do it that would be any more interesting so that's just sort of where we're stuck but they hop in the like in the requisite horror movie vw van i love it and they're heading down and this is where it becomes really apparent that the movie is starting to like check boxes um you get the requisite and these happened at the same time. Driving in the pouring rain scene, Love sketchy it. hitchhiker picking up the sketchy hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. And this is a weird play. So they had just bought a bunch of snacks from this place, this like corner store gas station. And yeah. turns out that like Heather had stolen her friend's credit card to pay for it. And then Ryan, who is Heather's boyfriend, played by Trey Songs, who for anyone who doesn't know was like a popular like hip hop artist in the, like the late aughts in the early like 2010s who i staunchly believe did not need an introducing credit because he would have been famous enough at the time uh, <laughs> well he was famous enough to have the name trey songs but i didn't know him so yeah if so i, cer- I certainly appreciated if you're famous enough to have a nickname that people like call you you don't need to be introduced I, yeah but so they're pulling out of this dark rainy <laughs> gas station and uh they hit they they get we get like a jump scare hitting a guy with a car um and this guy very dramatic yeah his name is daryl and he decides that he wants to be repaid for getting violently assaulted with this car by paying them gas money and having them drive him where he's going <laughs> yeah i mean he's likable he's he's almost too likable they, they come he's like a boy scout as they say later <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, he they they get, they allow him to get into the car pretty quickly, and um, I think he's a likable dude. I I liked his dynamic, and I also I liked his dynamic with the others. And it also reminded me that all these characters are are pretty they're pretty friendly. Normally, when you get a group of people in a slasher movie together, you have you have a bit more tension between them. You have someone that that needs to be you can understand that there's someone that needs to be offed for example in the original film this uh this guy in the wheelchair who we talked about before his name is franklin and he's 
he's sort of iconic in in horror circles for just being a god awful person. He's annoying <laughs> and whiny, and when and when he gets off, you're you're glad to see it happen. Whereas I noticed even from the brief conversations that these four characters had together when they were talking about how they need to go to New Orleans and how they're now changing their plans for Heather and, and they're going to accompany her to Texas. I really, I took note of the fact that um, that I was really enjoying their dynamic, that they were all likable, that they were all willing to go with her. Um, Kenny cook, cooks crepes, which is incredibly wholesome. Yeah, it's, and, it's um, not often you get like, this is like Scooby-Doo adjacent. It's like, it's not often that you yeah. get like a group of friends checking out something mysterious. And like right. generally under like we know it's a horror movie as an audience, but for them it's under the pretense that nothing's really gonna go wrong and they're just gonna like do this and then go do the thing that they're doing. Um but we can jump to when they actually get to this like house. Um and immediately after a man named Mr. Farnsworth shows up who looks a mm -hmm. bit like the Monopoly man or like a Colonel Sanders or almost even like a Wilford Brimley kind of situation. And he has like the documents to hand over this house and presents Heather with this giant ring of keys with a giant skeleton key on it. And it looks like goofy and ridiculous because this apparently dead woman's house has like still a working high tech, like security gate because she was big on security, but she also has a skeleton key. Like it's the 1830s again. And mm -hmm. anyway, she's presented with all this stuff to like take over the estate. And right at the end, he almost forgets the important thing which is another trope it feels like they're checking off where it's like, oh, you know, who cares about this most important thing that you could possibly have? And it's a letter from the grandmother who died, whose name is like Verna Sawyer. And, yeah. uh, and uh, Colonel Sanders is like, you, you should read this first. This is important. Don't not read this. Read this. And then she also gets a business card and they go in and it's this big like palatial place with a bunch of like fancy doors and all this ornate cutlery. And she promptly does not read that letter at all because why not? And there's a note here that I'm not proud of having taken, but I feel like it's something we need to, we need to account for. Alexandra Daddario's midriff should have a supporting actress credit <laughs> because this wardrobe is fucking egregious. And I mean, you know, it's male gaze, but like, fuck between that and like every gratuitous shot of Nikki changing or her ass. It's a little, mm -hmm. it's a lot. It's not a little. It's a lot. And um, it feels weird because the dynamic of the group doesn't feel like tense or exploitative. So to have mm -hmm. the way their shot feel exploitative is kind of like weird to me. I'm wondering what you thought of that shot of Nikki in particular, the shot that the camera looms low and it's looking up at her butt in the red shorts as she walks up to the house. Did you notice that that was a shot that was taken directly from the original? Um, I only noticed it because they showed the shot in the credits. <laughs> in the opening credits. Yeah, I only noticed it because of that, but I did catch that. And, like, to their credit, like, a callback's a callback. But, like, later in the movie, Heather's character is given a different shirt that buttons up in the front, and she opts to button up two of them. Mm. And it's like, alright, this is a lot. We're focusing, yeah, I'm... we're focusing on the wrong things here. Okay, carry on. Oh, I meant the movie was, but maybe we are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they decide that they want to go into town to, you know, stock the place. They want to stay the night because it's nice and it's crazy. But while and while Heather's like walking around the estate for the first time, she finds like an on property graveyard, which I guess is a totally normal thing that people have. And uh, 
the, her grandmother's body is literally recently buried. Like it's just a dirt pile in front of a tombstone. Yes. And there's yeah, yeah, yeah. also like a dug grave with a casket in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, just, you know, it's the kind of thing you have in your backyard. I don't know what you want me to say. Everybody's backyard <laughs> has a casket in it because you don't know when you're going to need it. And they clearly need right. it. But as they go into town, they decide to leave good old hitchhiking Daryl. Boy uh, Scout Daryl. Boy Scout Daryl uh, with the keys uh, to load everything in. And he immediately calls them a bunch of dipshit idiots for thinking he's a Boy Scout. And he just kind of ransacks the place. Not to their face, though. Not to their face. It's, it's like, important they, they to know And he's like, gotcha. And yes. he's got this ring of keys. And he goes and he steals like candle holders and cutlery like it's not going to be suspicious at all that he walks into a pawn shop and like tries to sell that for money it's like yeah he's just (laughs) yeah he's just he's just all these candelabras and shit (laughs) he's just toppling over all this dishware some of it is going to the floor some of it is just going into this bottomless bag he has i don't know how he's deciding what to take and what not to take just like taking shit but the thing that he's so focused on is what that skeleton key is for and like any good mansion in a horror movie, uh, this place has secret doors. And in the kitchen, he finds like a secret door into what Kenny later describes as something called a butler's pantry. And mm-hmm. that butler's pantry is another door that goes downstairs. And there's actually a really great shot where he's walking downstairs and he's psyched that he thinks he's found where this key goes. And there's like a singular hanging light bulb and he like taps it while he's walking down the stairs. And it's got this interesting like the way the light swings just looks nice. It's almost as if like the movie stumbled into a really compelling shot by accident. And uh, right. Because the, yeah, yeah, the I... cinematography is fairly <laughs> tame. Like it's not reinventing the wheel. It is. The, the bright lights are what gets me the most. You yeah. can see it in the beginning of the film um, before they're on the road and you can see it when um, Kenny and Nikki and Heather and Trey songs are, are visiting the gas station and the lights are just so bright. If you know, it feels like I'm getting a cavity, but the, but the inside of the house is a lot darker. And, and as, as um, boy scout Daryl is going deeper into the house, the lighting too gets deeper. And it's this idea that as he's going deeper, we're, we're approaching the horror. And um, I like that he's so confident and so set to, to go down these stairs and to, and he's sort of, he's creeping, near the evil but he doesn't know that he's creeping near the evil right and and i so i really liked that idea and i and i I too like the swinging light and i I like the darkness that that we're starting to get here it's the first time that the movie actually feels creepy i think yeah that's what i was about to say i was about to describe it as this is when the movie becomes what it is Uh, right because because even in the beginning in the opening credits when we are getting the tail end of one of the greatest horror films of all time when we're getting the rest of that story in this in this shootout it's it's very slapsticky the foley work is you know when when um when heather's mother gets kicked in the face it's ridiculous it's like you know this sound that's that's basically played for laughs like yeah it's so slapsticky these people are on fire they're spinning around and and it, it's and just ridiculous the effects are horrible in the not movie. great yeah and not great this it's weird a couple times they use squibs and it looks great or they're using fake blood <laughs> but every once in a while they opt for digital blood yes yeah that's a problem in this movie i mean it's 2013 digital blood like i don't know what you want me to tell you it doesn't look great like yeah but as he gets down there, um, there's this big like metal thing and he's hell bent on opening it because he wants to like ransack the place more. And he's trying to like pry it open with a knife and pull it open. 
And this is the moment where we get the arrival of Leatherface. And the beauty of this moment, and this is where, like, some of what the movie does really works, is uh, Mm -hmm. there is no pomp at all. He just comes out, and he has, like, uh, oh, man, what's the word for that? Like a meat? Uh, A cleaver. A tenderizer, yeah. Yeah, and he just bashes Daryl and just Mm -hmm. beats his face in and drags him away. And Daryl's out of the movie now, and Leatherface is here, and it's so straightforward yes it's really compelling because you do go from a somewhat light dynamic amongst this group uh and then also in the while they're in the town concurrent with what's happening to daryl you start to get hints of the creepy but it it works really well that it's just like leatherface is this like force that just arrives I'm so, I'm so glad that you picked that up from this movie because that is that is the biggest takeaway I think from the original film and it's why that original film, their face is so scary. Toby Hooper in that original film does a similar thing where there's the first 20 minutes or so of the film there's a lot of daylight these these characters are just having a good time and one of them breaks off from the rest of them he he wanders into this house and Leatherface does a similar thing where he he swings open a metal door much like the one in the basement and he clocks this dude in the head and then we just get a single shot of the dude's legs shaking as his body is 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 dying on the ground and there's there's no it comes out of nowhere and it's it's so effective and i I thought this was not only an homage to that but i i thought it worked in in a very similar and surprising fashion because up until this point it doesn't seem like the kind of movie that's that's going to have violence in that way particularly in the opening scene um violence isn't treated that way at all it's it's sort of ridiculous and slapsticky but but this is brutal and then we get that shot of daryl on the ground which this goes a bit further than the original but I, but I really liked it we get Leatherface just just pummeling him with this tenderizer two or three hits and you can see Daryl's face oh, exploding yeah, really grisly and and so I think that's sort of the equivalent of of the leg shake in the original movie it's it's this movie's um riff on that is that we see his face just getting gored and it, it looks very realistic and it almost up- it, it, it's almost updating the leg shake because audiences can take a little bit more so it's like yeah hey, we can watch a dude's face get beaten and we're not gonna like nobody's gonna like petition the movie get removed from the theaters um, totally and while that's happening while the movie is kind of establishing itself we also see that it's establishing its characters um its auxiliary characters around her and this is somebody who we see the sawyer family was sort of maligned after obviously leatherface went on like a giant killing spree which i guess happens but they already weren't <laughs> you know just your you know everybody's got a cousin that goes on a killing spree and it's like oh my yeah God. i wonder if he's the kind of guy that can be redeemed to, let's find out to just put us on blast like that and make the town hate us jed yeah. uh, but, uh <laughs> please clap but uh so we get introduced to or we rather we get reintroduced um to bert hartman who is the ringleader from the opening and now mayor of the town. And I don't mm. know if he like ran on the platform of I'll kill people we don't like. Or it's very if, possible. Or if he just like was riding the goodwill from like however many years ago, 30 or some odd years ago. Maybe not that yeah. many. Because Alexander Daddario is not that old. Well, that's do, you, do we want to get into this right now? The timeline issue? Because it's a problem. We'll, I'll finish introducing uh, Scott Eastwood. And then we'll go. Okay. And then we'll okay, get carry on. So Scott Eastwood is also there, and he is playing Carl, who is this like deputy, um, who sort of is, like he's playing nice and he's almost like hitting on her. He's trying to tell her what kind of charcoal to buy. You know, good old Carl Charcoal Cop, as uh, I guess I'll call him now. And mm-hmm. uh, once the mayor 
sort of gets wind that like she's a sawyer he instantly wants to like try to swindle her out of the property and like get her out of town because you can tell he's still got, like there's like ravenous fucking bloodlust in his eyes like he's not ready to be done killing yet uh like he's sort of alluding to that but anyway yeah yeah we, we can dive into this now so you'll know this a bit better than me but there's like a ton of stuff here or timeline wise like you were saying that just doesn't really track so we know well, why don't you tell me your impression of it? Tell me, tell me what time you think this takes place in, and if that makes sense for you. Well, I'm going off the age, uh, the rather the years the movies came out. So, yeah, let's, sure. Let's look at it that so, way. So, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm gonna have to just give me a sec. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first one. Seventy-four, I think. Okay, seventy-four. This yeah. is 2013. So this is 39 years later. And mm-hmm. In the beginning, we are shown a baby who had been like burned because the house literally got molotoved and there's this mm-hmm. like, specific burn mark on it heather's that baby i'm not gonna you know that if you watch the movie you figure that out pretty quickly same birthmark heather's that baby um but the implication there would be that that is a nearly 40 year old woman yes uh, and it's not even a matter of like how old or young does the actress look or how old or young is she that's just clearly not the case because they're using they're especially discredited because they're using the same actors in the opening but like but burt hartman would have to be like fucking 80 or something yes like those characters have not requisitely aged enough and like the group the friend group here that we have of like heather ryan who is trey songs nikki and kenny look like college students at the oldest or at least that's what they're going for they're not like in college as far as the movie puts on but it's like they look like they're in their 20s so yeah with of that, course that, yeah. that movie would have to be set in like 1996 uh yeah. later there is like a cop doing an investigation on like a high quality video call smartphone yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so that's that's when that. so that's when it becomes apparent to me that um because this movie is so determined to follow and sequelize the original film directly it's it's asking for us to for the viewers to think of these sort of questions right so i don't want to nitpick any sort of timeline here but it's b- no, because the film nitpick, nitpick the timeline right because i think it's a pretty big nit is because it's it's connecting itself so intently on after the first film and it wants to be a continuation of that story so by necessity of the story that they want to tell that this is a baby from 1974 from the sawyer family who grew up this movie needs to be set in you're right the mid 90s or so and um and and it's absolutely not because that would have been an interesting play for them to do that totally 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 and so yeah we so we get once we get smartphones that's when it becomes apparent to me that oh this isn't just a reverse grease thing it's not it's not young people playing old people this takes place in modern day very clearly and so the issue here um, I've done some research, and the issue is that the screenwriters did orish- initially write this movie to take place in the mid '90s. It was a period. It was a period piece, and that's what it was supposed to be. And it wasn't until the production process started, and the director and the producers started getting involved, and somewhere along the line, they just decided that that would be too difficult, and viewers aren't going to think about it because difficult. You know, people, though, like they're already in. Like all you have to do is not put in the technology you put in mm-hmm. and dress them 
for the 90s. That's it. That's the only real requirement. Right. And I, th I think that's where the biggest issue of this problem comes up is that on one hand, it's a modern day slasher movie. And on the other hand, it's a sequel to one of the most iconic horror films is of it, all time. Is it potentially because the studio wanted to do 3D that the 3D wouldn't track if it was set in the 90s? I can't I can't believe that that would be the case yeah, because right we have we have stuff like Friday the 13th part 3 which is a 3D film from the 80s and I think it would be very neat to see uh, a 3D film that doesn't take place in in modern day because the 3D aspects of this film are they come from a chainsaw yeah. going toward the screen they come from blood splatters and that yeah. sort of thing is timeless so it, yeah. it absolutely that, that can't be the, the problem CG not work or rather the 3D is the CG um, there's a moment later that has usurped jumping the shark for me uh, which I'm going to lovingly call throwing the chainsaw and uh, oh. like that doesn't look very good but no. it's fun and it's a very cool act yeah. yeah anyway they imply that there's like a carnival in town uh which is a really great sequence that they set up and i don't think they use it nearly enough i think it's a really clever move but they go back and they have like their dinner and everything and kenny gets curious and mm. um gets murdered by Leatherface. I, lo I love this, that Kenny gets curious. I really like the house that we have established here because in, in typical slasher movies, the idea is that a group of friends stumble across, I don't know, a cabin in the woods, or they, they wander into a house that isn't theirs, and much like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then they get punished for it. But in this film... We have Heather inheriting the house. So this this belongs to her now. And so it totally makes sense to me that the kids not only start doing college age things like drinking and having sex and playing they're cool. I guess, I guess you need they're comfortable. And so when they start wandering around, when Heather wanders into the graveyard and when Kenny wanders into the same passage that Daryl found, it makes sense to me because it's it's this glorious house and it, it belongs to one of their good friends. And so they're just having a good time. And so I think when Kenny wanders off, it, it not only makes sense within the story, but it also it makes his death more impactful because unlike daryl he he's not necessarily doing anything wrong yeah heather also goes exploring and ryan and nikki are off and kenny's been killed so she's sort of trying to investigate and we get our first sort of quintessential female lead slasher villain chase and i think one of the things that the chase does that's interesting is a they set up a graveyard and use it but b it manages to have people trip and fall without it feeling cheap <laughs> Because there's something about the way that Alexandra Daddario performs it where it feels like desperation, even though the movie is doing it because this is what horror movies do. I feel like she sells it really well. And are, are, are you talking about when she trips over the small fence on her way to the graveyard? I also think it works when she falls out of the house and down the stairs. But I think yeah. that, that trip especially... And then she sort of has that frantic moment where she's trying to decide what to do, and she hides in the aforementioned opened casket. And then we get Leatherface gives chase, and like after a pensive moment, kind of discovers that she's in there and starts like trying to chainsaw through it. And we get like her perspective of this like blade coming in, and she's like trapped in this box. Uh, Ryan and Nikki sort of come out and are like, "Who the fuck is this chainsaw man?" and get his attention, which then just puts them in danger. Uh, Heather having time to escape goes and gets their van and they sort of try to get away 
uh, they round everybody up. But Leatherface being this sort of like almost supernatural force uh, is able to catch up and like saws the wheel on their van and it flips into a ditch. And then like that crash kills Ryan very unceremoniously. I was surprised that they like didn't try to give him some sort of classic like horror movie you had sex you weren't supposed to kind of come up it's but at the same time i kind of appreciate their restraint yeah yeah i i I really i really appreciate the way that ryan went i thought when he um when he first found leatherface and called to him um it was clear that that he was that he was a strong character that was willing to protect his friends which again is is exactly the impression that i got from all these characters at the very beginning and then he gets in the car and there's this great sequence where he's he's driving them toward this gate and they're screaming at him to stop and stop and he says no i'm gonna drive through the gate which is something that i don't think you typically see in a horror movie i think typically that person that person would stop and they would they would see a gate and they say oh no we're stuck and they have to find a way through the gate but Ryan, he presses the pedal to the metal and he just goes through it. And then there's this really cool, I, I might even call it a subversion of, um, of convention where the gate, it, it, it does exactly what a metal gate would do. It doesn't give and the car slams into it and they're stuck. And then, and then Ryan is struggling to get the car started as Leatherface is coming. And in this sequence, I really felt all three characters terror. I thought that all three performances were great. Ryan is frantic. And Nikki is in the back, just hysterical. And Heather is screaming at him to get the car going. I thought it was so fantastic. And then, and then they get free, and only to have, like you said, the tire cut and the car to flip, and and one of them dies in that accident. I think, I think that's really smart, and it is. Um, I think it's reflective of what we saw earlier that this this does feel more realistic than than it probably has any right to. And I, I thought it was a really neat way for, for Ryan to go with the spirit of a warrior. Yeah, he really, he pushed hard and then, you know, he, he died, but he, uh, he didn't die at the hands of Leatherface, which was cool. You know, Trey songs, Trey songs killed himself. And I think, I think that's respectable. I, I think what you're getting at is sort of two things. One, this movie does have compelling ideas, however big or small, it almost feels as though they weren't allowed to execute on them more because I feel like there's a different version of this movie that could exist that leans into... I don't want to say that just like this subversion because subversion is inherently good. I don't think it is, but like there are ideas here that I think work a lot. And at the same time, I also think that like, I think maybe I don't agree as much with like how you feel about the performances. But what I will say is that there are definitely moments like that one that do feel really good. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting to see those juxtaposed with like everything that's frankly, most things that aren't a horror moment are like really robotic and stiff. So it's weird that like it's in the moments that they're given the most room and that they do interesting things where you also get the most out of your actors are the things that we end up kind of seeing the least of because the movie wants to fast forward to what its tagline implies it's about, which is evil has many faces. But before we get there, we the, the movie does another thing that I think is really great, which having set up that carnival, Leatherface sees that Heather is still alive and gives chase and they go through the woods and she like climbs this fence into this carnival and Leatherface just cuts his way through the fence and they're sort of running around and there's like attractions and there's like another person in a mask with a chainsaw and Leatherface is like scaring them off. And there's a lot of like, 
interesting visuals and a lot of interesting potential set pieces. She's trying to escape and wading her way through this crowd and everything's really brightly lit for the first time in a while because, you know, it's like a public party. And she's hanging off of this fucking, like, Ferris wheel and screaming and just losing it. <laughs> and Scott Eastwood is there in blue jeans, which I don't think is, like, a cop uniform. And, like, he sort of tries to maybe help. He, like, gets Leatherface to leave. Um, This is the throwing the chainsaw moment where he just, like, drops his weapon and dips. But like, Yeah, he scurries off. Yeah, yeah. he, like... But at this, it doesn't make Leatherface feel weak at all. It feels as though, like, he's just out of his element. Like, this is not the circumstances in which he conducts his, like, grim work. So he needs right. to, like, regroup and be given another opportunity. Yeah, it, it is kind of adorable. This is where it sort of feels like Leatherface character, right? He's not just a killing machine. This there, there's almost, someone behind the mask. This is almost, yeah, I was going to say, this is almost the pivot where they go, like, yeah, we're going to humanize this guy, sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, and... She ends up going to the police station, and the movie sort of slows down a little bit. And yeah, this is this is the turn of the movie. I yeah. think you saying that this is where Leatherface is humanized is totally right. Because at this point in the movie, we have we have two main characters left. We have Nikki and Heather. And so I was thinking, two people left. There's 40 minutes left in the movie. What's going on here? This isn't. This is normally the, the when, when there's two really people. Doesn't waste its time like getting the kills out of its system. Mm -hmm. uh, because the last act or maybe the last half may be a more appropriate way of putting it um, it's not afraid of violence and it's not short on violence but it's focus feels wholly different and that's largely because the mayor upon learning that there's a Sawyer back in town gets involved and this yeah. is the same moment where trying to figure out more to do with this fucking like weird series of crimes and murders uh, there's this, like, big evidence crate that's brought out, and this is the moment where Heather learns of her, like, true past in that, like, this group led by this creepy mayor guy sort of, like, killed her whole family that she never got a chance to know and, like, did all these horrible things that the town sort of supported it all. And at the same time, there's another cop named Marvin who who's out on patrol, and, like, in the beginning, the sheriff, Sheriff Hooper, is trying to get him to, like, chill the fuck out and not do anything rash but once again the mayor who appears to just be more important than the sheriff in control of the cops because he's a very fucking influential dude um, mm -hmm. just sort of tells marvin to keep going and marvin is following this bloody trail deeper and deeper into the house like we've seen previously and he's seeing a lot of the same sort of sets that we've seen already from the previous exploring like the wine cellar and where Leatherface was like chopping people up earlier when he had Heather in his grasp and he gets down into this dark room where he's seeing these bodies mm -hmm. and let's let's keep in mind quickly that that Nikki is still she's Nikki a loose is end Heather is a, Nikki is unaccounted for so it's it's really interesting that even though we have Heather taken away from the scene of the crime halfway through the movie which is which is a cool it's a cool move to do in and of itself. We also have this loose thread of Nikki and we know that Leatherface has her somewhere. And so when this police officer is moving toward the action, we, we have that idea in our head yeah. that, that, that there's still something connecting us to yeah, the, this the, to is the not terror there. necessarily unimportant, assuming the movie has done its job of making you worry about Nikki. And he gets down there and uh you know they're on this like video call because hartman the mayor wanted visual and i guess you can just do that i guess he is enough <laughs> service in this fucking murder basement um, and also because it's not 1995 because it's clearly not 1995 and <laughs> what a shame uh, yeah for shame there's like a freezer 
like, and they're like, well, you got to check what's in the freezer. You have to open it. This is a movie. Totally. And you have to in, in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there is a character stored in a freezer. So this oh, is okay. very, this is a neat callback. So, you know, Marvin, horrified, sweaty. Everyone's real sweaty at this point. Texas is hot in the summer. Wait, it's not yeah. the summer. It's like October. It's Halloween. Oh, yeah. I think that's so cool, too. We do, we do learn. How, did you know that point in the movie? Um, I figured it out only because this is my second time watching it as well. Uh, or rather, we had watched most of it. This is the first time I had realized that the reason they were going to New Orleans was for Halloween party. And I just oh, okay. Interesting, interesting. Because I didn't pick it up until a little later in the movie. Is it when the truck drives by with the dudes in the back? Right. That was when I picked it up. And so I thought once I noticed that, it's a shame I didn't notice it a bit earlier. But also, I think it would be cool if the film really leaned into that. Because obviously Halloween is a huge slasher franchise as well. But you have to remember that the idea of Halloween isn't, isn't trademarked, right? Oh, wait, anyone you know anyone can do it. What's that? It comes up way earlier. It comes up in like the first scene. Because yeah. Nikki and Heather are talking about the trip. And she says that she's Nikki says she's gonna go work on her Halloween costume and it's not gonna uh, be scary, it's gonna be sexy. And then she yes, yes, yes. her ass because that's the kind of movie this is. And You're right. They go on so right. it's like, yeah, there's actually like they establish that without really doing anything with it, which is kind of another thing that's a bit of a shame. Like they have kind of good ideas that they're not really working with. But right. um to keep going, Marvin, our boy, bad cop, they're all bad cops, shitty cop Marvin, flings the freezer open. And screaming out of the top, Nikki just fucking sits up, terrified, stored in this freezer, Leatherface waiting for the appropriate time to kill her, and Marvin, being fucking stressed, just shoots her in the face. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I audibly gasped. It's yeah. uh, it's 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 pretty. It's it's similar to when Leatherface kills Daryl with just a swift hit. It's the violence happens so quickly, and then you just kind of. Yeah. There, there's a silence afterward and the breath is sort of taken out of the movie and you just have to sit there with the it violence i feel like slashers kind of have a couple different modes that they work in um the violence can be methodical or the violence can be like really sporadic and like sort of visceral and almost goofy um or it can be like off screen or like understated this movie's kind of riding a weird line where it's still visceral and it still feels methodical, but it never feels overblown. And maybe a, the way to put it is it never feels choreographed. Where it's like Leatherface doesn't feel like he's enacting like grand plans. He feels like, It feels like there's a dude in the basement. Leatherface kills people. Leatherface is going to kill this person. And that's the scene you get. And there's mm -hmm. nothing like... This isn't Jason picking up a sleeping bag and throwing it against a tree. Like there's nothing silly or weird about it. It almost doesn't even feel premeditated. It feels like invading upon like the territory of a wild animal. And it's like, well, yeah. it's going to defend itself. And that's sort of the whole kind of core thesis of the movie here yeah. is that Hartman wants to, upon discovering that like Heather and Leatherface are alive, gets back on the warpath to kill them. And this is really like if the turn is well and underway at this point to be like, you know, Leatherface deserves better. And they start establishing that like, you know, he's emotionally or mentally stunted and like he's had these difficulties and his like family's been killed and you know kind of carefully papering over the fact that he did violently massacre a bunch of people which is something mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not really i'm not comfortable with how prepared the movie is to just kind of leave that because it's like yeah he had a rough go he did still violently mutilate a bunch of people with a chainsaw so maybe it's not super earned 
Yeah, this this movie really demands you to um, suspend your disbelief in a pretty wild way. Either suspend your disbelief or just really wrestle with your own moralness. Yeah, because it's it's a big ask for sure, and Are I'm still you willing to forgive what he did, knowing the circumstances would bore that. And I think the answer's no. I'm not. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty firm no. Yeah, but that said, that's when we start to get like. Hartman, the mayor, and his, like, cronies really sort of actively hunting Heather. And Heather's trying to call in favors. She gets back in touch with the executor of the will, Mr. Farnsworth, and they meet up in this, like, bar that has the original chainsaw that got burned in the fire as a trophy, which is fucking wild. Oh, I, I didn't notice that. Do they call attention to that? Yeah, it's the establishing shot to show that they're in the bar. The chainsaw is, like, hanging from the roof. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. So, and it's weird because they describe it as the town's dirty secret, but like, yes. clearly they're very supportive that this happened. Or at least the people who run this bar are because they're very fucking open about it. Yeah, and I, I love that idea of this small, corrupt town where uh, it not not even, like you said, it's not necessarily belly. It's just, it's just the belly, right? Like, it's just, yeah. it has a terrible belly. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. This town is. This is not like, this is not like a grim shocking realization this is just what's happening right and it, and it makes that one sheriff I, i've forgotten his name now but the black sheriff it makes him hooper it, oh very cool that's the director of the original yeah. film is toby hooper it, it uh it, it makes him stand out a bit more and I'm, I'm glad that they gave his name to the to one of the uh one of the moral characters in the story okay, that's really actually, neat you know what let's, ha let's hash this out now is that a moral character because i don't think so I think that well, he wants to have morals, but he doesn't fucking do anything. He just finger wags and is like, hey man, I'd really rather you didn't burn that family alive. Hey man, that's I'd true. Really I mean, we. I'd really rather you didn't put Leatherface in a meat grinder. Yeah, he, he does. I guess the most he does is a stiff shove. You're right. You're yeah. right. And like when things happen later, he's just like, well, clean it up and I guess we're all right. And it's like, I, I do kind of appreciate that, like, the alternative here, the alternative to, like, evil is not goodness, it's apathy. It's like, eh, I don't care anymore. I'm tired. Like, he, he's so tired of all their bullshit that he's just like, man, I don't fucking care. Just get this out of my life. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, um, and I'm with you. Well, it's worth just kind of, we got to just skip to the end, right? Like, we're almost there. Hartman, the mayor, and his cronies are on this path, and this is where we discover uh, the least surprising thing in this whole movie, which is that Scott Eastwood's Carl is in on it. He is the mayor's son, and uh, he has, you know, sort of duped Heather into thinking that he was here to help, and is taking her to the Sawyer family, like, factory to sort of, like, lure Leatherface there and sort of, like, kill them and get this over with as far as this group is concerned. And um, Hartman is still really, like, vitriolic and mean and cruel. And they sort of, like, tie her up. And then Leatherface finally arrives. And there's this, like, moment where you think that Leatherface is just going to, like, pivot again and just kill her. He sees, like, the scar from the burn. And they, like, cut her free. Uh, which is kind of just schmaltzy in a way that, like, it isn't, like, it doesn't feel earned at all. Because it's, like, well, you know what's going to happen by that point as a viewer. But it's just still sort of, like, eye roll. Mm. I don't know. How did you feel about that? How did you feel about, like, them making this turn really concrete? And then, by extension, really setting up, like, yeah, the antagonist here is Hartman. 
Leatherface is your, like, hero here, because they don't really let Heather do a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely... I've got to say, I do appreciate the different take on the story, because if we're looking at this as a as one of many, many, many sequels in a long running franchise, the thing that this movie offers that's different is that Leatherface is a sympathetic character and they're, they're telling a story that relates to family and um and grief and, and all those things that are left behind and so i do think i do think in this film it, it comes across as schmaltzy this this moment comes across as schmaltzy but i can't say i disagree with the intent i think i think a lot of the script here when looked at in isolation is actually it, it go it does some really neat things and i think if you were to just read a plot summary it it, it kind of works for me um when i'm considering things that happened in the movie and we're going through them i i think think they sound totally fine and even as you're describing this now that Leatherface finds this birthmark that has been brought up multiple times and reflects this necklace that has been seen multiple times totally totally and so when you're describing all these things I I say oh yeah that was that was a that was a cool moment and I appreciate what that means but then I think back to how it was actually executed in the film and it didn't resonate with me so it might sound like I'm gushing a lot this whole time because we're now separated from the film and I'm just talking about the story. I think where this movie really falters is in the execution of all these things. It's not it's not presented with very much craft. We don't get like you said the cinematography is pretty flat and um I still think though that like my biggest problem is I still just I don't I think the premise is just fundamentally like flawed and the cynic in me says that this script got optioned because it was so far down the line of the series that they're like our best option is to do something like this where we sort of recontextualize it but when you Mm -hmm. consider that there's a lineage of like five previous films where like they've repeatedly established that there is nothing to recontextualize or like the reality of Leatherface as a slasher villain has been like so cruel and so violent that like it has been so dehumanized at that point that to try to earn this from your audience, even in something that like, you know, studios are going to pitch is like, Oh, it's mindless and teens will go see it and it'll make us a bunch of money. It's like, it still feels cheap to try to just say like, Oh, but what if he was good actually? And what if like Heather upon resolution of this just sort of like is now cursed with like taking care of him in this fucking house. And I feel like despite the fact that I think some of the ideas are compelling, I feel like that kind of fundamentally drops the ball because it's so hard for me to be like, yeah, this is who I'm rooting for that. I, it kind of loses me. And then, you know, I guess to sort of make this as clear as possible, there is this final confrontation between Heather Leatherface, the mayor and the sheriff also arrives in the distance. And, uh, the original idea was to put like Leatherface through this like vicious meat grinder, and because movies, uh, the mayor gets put through the meat grinder, and later Heather, once things have kind of been resolved, finally reads that letter, which does explain that the house that you're inheriting, uh, has like this psychotic killer in the basement, but family's family, so you should take care of them. You know, mm-hmm. something they really harp a lot too is that this is like a blood is thicker than water kind of scenario, and it's one of those things where like. That's true, but if my sister 
were a serial killer, I'm going to have to cut that connection from my life because I feel like the things that they're trying to paper over with like, oh, but the townspeople were cruel is like an unforgivable act. So I don't know where the writers kind of get off with like, oh, but what if it was fine, actually? Right. Yeah, I'm with you. It is, um, and it's difficult, right? Because there's this idea that Leatherface is defending his territory. So that is why he killed not only the uh, townspeople, because we have to remember after he kills Marvin, he, he goes to the portrait of um, the newspaper photo of local heroes and he scratches oh, out yeah, Marvin's face. So it's this idea that, okay, he's getting payback for what these people did to his family, you know, back when he was a baby, back when he didn't know. But those wouldn't have to give payback if he hadn't murdered a bunch of people. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, that's where the disconnect is. And I think that, like, what's weird is I do have these problems, like, these foundational, like, issues with the way this is presented. I also have issues with how the movie characterizes what makes Leatherface an uncomfortable character for these people because they decide not, it's not the fact that he murders a bunch of people. It's the fact that he cross dresses and has makeup in his basement, uh, mm-hmm. which is just kind of like, I don't know if that's just like antiquated shitty 2013 views or what, but that just doesn't sit right with me now. But in any case, the main point I'm kind of trying to drive at here is, it's weird how many issues I have because sitting down to watch it, it still feels like it works. Like I enjoyed watching it. And I think for all it's like tropes and whatever, like it's checking a lot of boxes. It's not really reinventing the wheel. The exposition's kind of shitty, but like sitting down to watch it is a fairly enjoyable experience. So I think if you do turn your brain off or at least you don't try to like meaningfully engage with like what it is they're asking of you, you can just kind of enjoy it, which I think circles back to what we were saying when we started, which is like, this would be great if it wasn't a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, hmm. or at least it didn't have that looming over it. Sure. I think I think our big difference here is that um, what you were describing there, if this were separated from a Texas Chainsaw movie and, they, and this character of Leatherface was... Um, was maybe being punished for something he didn't do. I think that sounds more like a typical a typical revenge story that I've seen before. Whereas whereas the film we get here is I guess the is, slasher angle is what makes that better than just a revenge movie. Is the fact that like this is like Leatherface is who Leatherface is is what makes that compelling. Right, but then why can't... So the reason it doesn't work for you is because of what we see him do in the original film, is what you're getting at. Yeah, because it's not that I think, like, that this angry mob was justified in killing an entire family, but it's one of those things where it's like, it's hard to make me feel deep sympathy for a character who, A, kills three of our main... four of our main characters in brutal, horrible ways. Three of them, sorry and uh did what that previous movie establishes because Mm -hmm. that's a difficult thing to just sort of leave behind right i think 
I think the reason it works for me is just because, um, well, it's just because it's a horror movie, right? I don't think it's saying, and I don't mean that because it's supposed to be silly, it's a horror movie. I mean, I just mean because it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be evil and unsettling. I don't think the movie is asking us to think that Leatherface is a good guy. I think it is just hammering home this idea that evil does come in many faces, as the tagline says. And so we know that Leatherface is still evil and and he's not justified but we just we we have a better understanding of where he's he's coming from yeah, and i think reorienting that iconic figure from the first film is is an interesting idea in concept and i think on paper it works what i do think is that that is a good place to end our first episode here so cool um you can find more of this show uh on any podcast service worth its salt it will be under they made another one uh we're not clear on how much punctuation that's going to have yet but we'll let you know you can find us on twitter and facebook and all that uh once again this has been Corey and liam and we will see you next time And welcome back to the very scary present. However, it couldn't possibly be scarier than some of that audio quality. Yikes, somebody was recording a first episode. Anyway, now you've experienced one of the most precious moments of your entire Halloween month. And as we leave you with such a gift, we would like to say thank you once again for listening to They Slayed Another One. You can find our ghosts all over the internet on the most haunted website of all, Twitter at They <laughs> I'm keeping the last. At They Made Another, all one word. You can hear us in your ears on Anchor. Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, and all sorts of other places, as they made another one? Not to be confused with this better show, they slayed another one? You can reach us via email at theymadeanotheronepod at gmail.com. Wait, Corey, you have to say scream ale. You can reach us via scream ale! at theymadeanotheronepod at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, comments, questions, complaints about this skeleton wizard voice. Whatever you want, it's a free country. Liam, where can people find you? You guys can find my work on Twitter and Letterboxd. My film writing alter ego is Graham the Haunted Marshmallow and my username on both those sites is Graham the Mallo. All year long, not just October. Halloween all year over here. And you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Corey Price, M-R-C-O-R-E-Y Price. And with that, we will catch you here next time for more scary episodes of They Slayed Another One? <laughs>